God, we just thank you for this morning once again. What a, an incredible thing it is that you are our living hope, that we have a Savior who went and died on a cross for us and was raised from the dead that we could have life. What an amazing thing. And God, the death has lost its grip on us because of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. We thank you now for the time that we have, that we can spend a few moments uh, just worshiping you and looking at your word. And I pray that you would just uh, speak through me the words that you have, that uh, it would all be to your glory. So we thank you, Lord. We commit our time to you now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I got to say, when I was first assigned this passage, I got really excited because I saw that John Tillery's title for the passage was Adam's Rib. And it made me really excited because I thought of this immediately when I heard Adam's Rib. This is what I thought of. Adam's Rib barbecue and catering. But you can imagine my disappointment. I thought I was finally going to get to do a Chef Ken lesson for the adults. But then I suddenly realized the sermon was going to have nothing to do with barbecue. Uh, so I was kind of disappointed with that. And I know bringing up barbecue right before lunchtime probably not a, a great idea either. But please stay with me for the next 30 minutes as we do explore God's Word together. Now, if you remember a few weeks back, we were in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and Dan Kachikas was showing us that the church in Ephesus was in some disarray. And Paul was writing to Timothy to teach him how to put the church back in order. He was helping them to protect the church and to put, help put the church back in order in the way it should be. And last week, when we got to chapter 2 in the first eight verses, we saw that this began with prayer. And in particular, we saw in verse 2 that we could pray for our governing authorities. And it told us this, We pray for the governing authorities so that we can all live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. But then at the end of last week, we saw when we got to verse 8, that apparently there were some issues. And it tells us that some of the men apparently were having issues with anger and quarreling. And so as we get into verse 9 now this week, in this week's passage, Paul's going to instruct Timothy on some of the issues facing the women in the church. So let's start by reading our text for the week. We're going to read, uh, our text is 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15, but I'm actually going to start in verse 8. So let me read 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15. And they read this. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, let me just start by saying I realize... Many in the world today want to make this a very controversial passage. But I hope that you'll see past the culture today. I think we heard it this morning. Sometimes the Word of God is going to seem like foolishness to the world. But I hope you'll see past the culture today and that you'll glory in the order that God has set for His church. 
And we're going to explore that and see why that is so. So, one thing I do want to start off with is a note from verse 8, and that's why I included it. Because in verse 8, you'll see that it has the phrase, in every place. Paul uses that phrase, in every place, four times in his writings in the New Testament. He uses it in 1 Corinthians 2, he uses it in 2 Corinthians 1, and 1 Thessalonians 1, and here in 1 Timothy. And in all four times, when he uses that phrase, in every place, it refers to the official assembly of the church. So think about what we're doing now. The church is gathered for worship now. And that's his uh, phrase. We can read into that is this teaching isn't just for the church at Ephesus, but it's a general principle that applies for the church today. And their goal, as well as our goal, is for all of God's family, as it said, to live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. We're going to see in our passage today that Paul's going to address three key areas facing the women. He's going to talk about modest dress, godly works, and respecting authority. And I think we're going to see in this how the women in the church can reflect the beauty of God's order in the church. Now, as a caveat, let me just say, I'll mention several times Paul's teaching. But we've got to remember that Paul was, he wrote this all under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So when I'm talking about Paul's teaching, this is teaching from God. And we've got to remember, when it's from God, it's always for our good and for His glory. So let's dive into this. Let's start taking a look at some of these passages that people may think are controversial. Verse 9 says this, Likewise also that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or, and gold or pearls or costly attire. So apparently we can read in this from verse 9, that there was a lack of modesty and some inappropriate dress that had infiltrated the church. And it was making the church life suffer. So let's start looking at this verse and breaking it down a little bit. And let's start with the word adorn. You'll see the word adorn or adornment in there. It comes from the word cosmeo. And that simply comes, you know it in our English dictionary, as cosmetic. And that simply means to arrange or to put in order or to make something ready. In other words, it's a reminder to us, I think, that it's appropriate to put some thought into how we prepare ourselves to come worship together as a church. Now, part of that adornment does include our clothing. And our clothing, I think when I say that, I mean the overall look that's being portrayed. I think what it's saying here for the women is that they should come to corporate worship ready to honor the Lord. Apparently, this was an issue at the church in Ephesus. But the question we should all consider with this is, what's the motive behind what I'm wearing? Is it being done to call attention to myself? Is it being worn to distract others? Is it being done to flaunt someone's wealth? To have any of those motives would not benefit the church and would cause disorder. John MacArthur put it this way, proper adornment on the outside reflects a properly adorned heart. But what is this proper adornment? Well, Paul goes on further, and he tells us it's being modestly dressed. Modest simply being decent and orderly. Modestly dressed is modesty mixed with humility. In other words, it's good for a woman to be sensitive in this passage to wearing, if she's wearing or maybe not wearing, something that would distract someone else from worship of God. And I would say men, especially in this day and age, we need to take heed to this as well. It applies to, to men, men's fashion stuff. can be just 
the same as the women's fashion. So we need to take heed to that. But please note, in this passage, Paul is not forbidding fixing up your hair. He's not forbidding that you can't wear jewelry and that you can't wear nice clothes. Rather, he's speaking about the excessive use of them or using your clothes as a substitute for true beauty. Because true beauty in Scripture is noted as a meek and quiet spirit. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 3, 4. 1 Peter 3, 4 says, But let your adorning, there's that word, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Again, Paul's not against nice clothes or hairstyles or jewelry, but it's the wrong motives and the preoccupation with these things that he's speaking of against in this, in this uh, verse. And so as he moves on to verse 10, we see the most important adornment that a woman can have is godliness with good works. Let me show, read verse 10 again. It says this, But with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Godliness is just a reverence for God. And that comes from within us. It doesn't come from our clothes. Colossians 3.12 says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people... Holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Good, when we see good in there, as in the good works, refers to works that are genuinely good, not just something that looks good on the outside. In women, in this passage, you're being called to, these, to this godliness with good works. So, let me help point that out. We're going to play a quick game of Jeopardy here. Quick round here, so I'm going to get you, keep your mind and your juices flowing here. I'm going to give you the answer, and you've got to give me the uh, question. So here's the answer. Dorcas, Lydia, Priscilla, Phoebe, and the godly women in the Berean and Thessalonian churches. And you would give me the question of who are? I've got one answer. That's pretty good. Wasn't sure I'd get any. Yes, these are godly women who had a major impact on the New Testament church, and they showed godliness with good works. Let's look at a couple of them. We mentioned Dorcas. Dorcas, in Acts chapter 9, she's known to be full of good works and charity. Lydia, you can read about Lydia in Acts chapter 16, says she was a businesswoman who opened up her house and showed hospitality. You can read about Priscilla in Acts chapter 18. Priscilla helped establish a church in her home and practiced hospitality and did teaching. And then Phoebe in Romans 16. Phoebe was listed as a helper of many. She's also known in a lot of places as a deaconess. She gets reference to that. And uh, a majority of people actually believe that Paul entrusted Phoebe with bringing the letter to the Romans to the church in Rome. So these were all women who practiced godliness with good works. Great examples for us. So looking at verses 9 and 10, we can make ourselves up to look good on the outside. But the true beauty that Paul's exhorting the women to seek comes from within. And it manifests itself in this godliness and a desire to do good works in God's name. So, that's 9 and 10. Let's move on to 11 and 12. Because in modern society, this is really where I think it gets controversial. And I was really glad for what Isaac had brought up this morning and his opening and what we heard. Because you're going to get challenged on some of these things. 
And some of these things may seem controversial and they may seem foolish to the world, but God has a purpose, and there God has a reason for it, and we need to glory in that. So let's take a look at verses 11 and 12. They read this. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now you'll notice the word quietly or quiet starts uh, at the beginning of verse 11 and it ends verse 12. It kind of brackets this teaching on that. It's also the same word that we saw last week in verse number 2. And what it truly translates to is peaceful or peaceable. So why does Paul bring up this quietness or this learning uh, peaceably in the church? Well, one possible reason this was mentioned is that some of the women in Ephesus may have been abusing their freedom in Christ and creating some disruption or disturbance in the church. And Paul is admonishing that practice. He's trying to remember the goal of the whole thing is to try and restore peaceful worship within the church. So Paul's teaching here is that women can help keep peace during corporate worship in a sense of not teaching over men in matters of doctrine and leadership and spiritual, uh, scriptural interpretation. And by not doing that teaching in corporate worship, a woman would be honoring the God-given authority of the elders or of the pastor. This learning about quietly, though, is not saying that women can't utter a word in church. And I know that's one of the challenges the world will get at saying that men are just being you know, heavy-handed and saying you can't utter a word. That's not what this verse is saying. But I would say for all of us, as we learn and teach, uh, as we learn, even if we're learning quietly or teaching, we should all do what the Bereans did. And that's test what is being taught against Scripture and make sure it's right. But you might say, okay, well, if I'm learning in quietness, how do I bring up a, a, a question? Or if I need a, a clarity on a teaching, what do I do? Well, in 1 Corinthians 4.15, it indicates that a wife should ask her husband at home. Now, that may not be your situation, or for whatever reason, that may not be a viable option. I would say the next option would be, come talk to one of the elders and seek that clarity or ask the questions. The leadership here at First Colony Bible Chapel, we're very open. We love to hear the input and the questions of the women in the church. It's valuable to us. And I think we're going to see in a minute, the other option I think that is out there is in in Titus 2, 3, and 4, where it says, the older godly women are to teach the younger women. What a fantastic resource. And we've got fantastic resources like that in this church. So we can take advantage of those. Now, when Paul mentions not exercising authority over a man in verse 12, let me be clear and very clear. This is not because women are inferior to men. And it's certainly not because Christian men are perfect. But it's because of God's design. And we're going to see that in verses 13 and 14. In fact, I would say Scripture affirms the spiritual equality of women in the body of Christ. Listen to Galatians 3.28. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. However, God has called men and women to different roles within the church. Let me put it another way. We can be spiritually equal and yet have different roles in the church. If you remember nothing else, remember that one key point. We can be spiritually equal but have different roles within the church. Now, verse 11 actually does bring up an interesting cultural aspect to this teaching. Because if you notice in verse 11, it actually said that Paul starts it off with, let a woman learn. In other words, 
Paul's expectation is the women should be learning. They should be uh, given every opportunity to learn, just like the men. And you and I today would think, absolutely, there's no reason that wouldn't happen. But in those days, many of the rabbis refused to teach the women. So it was kind of an issue then. But I would point out that opinion of the rabbis did not come from Scripture. (laughs) They came up with that on their own. Because the Old Testament and the New both affirm that women have a spiritually equal status to that of men. Let me give you some of the ways. Here's from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 1, it tells us the Mosaic Law was given to both men and to women. In Deuteronomy 6 and Proverbs 6, we read that men and women were to teach the law to their children. In Exodus 21, protections of the law applied equally to the men and the women. In Numbers 36, we see that women had inheritance rights. And in Exodus 12 and Deuteronomy 16, we see that men and women alike participated in all the Jewish feasts. And in uh, number 6, the Nazarite vow, maybe the most sacred of the vows, was available to men and to women. And it tells us that women were involved in spiritual service in Exodus 38 and Nehemiah 7. And there were even times that we see that God dealt with women directly. You can go to Genesis 3, Genesis 16, Judges 13, and you can find all these different examples. And that's just the Old Testament. In addition to the Old Testament, all the promises, the commands, the blessings of the New Testament apply equally to men and to women. New Testament and the Old Testament, they both teach us their spiritual equality in Christ, but they do teach us their different roles for the sexes. So when the church gathers for corporate worship, men have the God-given responsibility to instruct in truth and to model that in love, while God calls the women to respectfully support the leaders as they lead the church forward. And here's the key, all to the glory of God. Please note, though, this teaching is not teaching that women don't have the gifts of preaching or teaching. They're very gifted women that have these gifts, several in this congregation. And they exercise those gifts in very appropriate in, uh, conditions and circumstances. And some of those uh, circumstances or conditions would be these. In Titus 2, 3, 4, we mentioned earlier that the older women, the older godly women, were expected to teach the younger women. It tells us in Acts 18 that Priscilla and Aquila, we looked at Priscilla earlier, but Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos, and it says they taught him in a better way, the scriptures. But they did so in a private setting, not in a corporate worship setting. And in 2 Timothy 1, we see that Timothy was taught by his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Uh, those are scriptural examples. I'd say we've got plenty of examples right here in, the, in, in this church as well. We've got some very gifted ladies who teach our Sunday school. Children's church is going on right now, and, and there's some fantastic teaching that's done in there. Uh, in Kids Bible Club, I appreciate and uh, just am thankful for every single one of the women that, that teach in all of those things, in all those uh, areas of service. And I would say there's also some very gifted women who are teaching our ladies' Bible study as well. So it's not that women don't have the spiritual gifts of preaching and teaching. The issue is how they exercise those gifts while maintaining the principle of male headship in the church. At First Colony Bible Chapel, we try to maintain that principle in a God-honoring way. But I would also note, there's many churches that adhere to this principle, but they do things differently than we do here. Uh, David Guzik put it, I think, well this way. He said, believers can agree on this principle, the principle of male headship in the church, 
but have some disagreement as to exactly how that principle works out. Let me remind you also, this principle of male headship is for the church. There's no scriptural issue with a woman having authority or leadership in other areas. Think of politics or in business or in education. There's plenty of examples of excellent women in all of these roles. I personally have had several women supervisors and managers in my career at Chevron who have been excellent leaders. So this is for the church. And ladies, please, though, don't believe the lie of Satan that says the only role of significance in the church is leadership or preaching to the congregation. Know that the leaders bear a heavy burden and a responsibility. They have the responsibility of being accountable to God for their leadership and how they, how they care for the members of the church. And I realize some might try to make it seem like submitting to God's order of authority in the church. They'll make it seem like it's oppressive and it makes women feel inferior. But don't believe that. Because I think we have the perfect example, and it came up earlier today. The perfect example to all of this is God himself. We know that God is one, and yet we read in Scripture that God the Son perfectly submitted to the will of God the Father. The idea of inferiority and superiority, that's not what this verse is teaching. That's not what this is all about. We have that perfect example. And so to think that authority or a structure of authority or being under authority makes a person inferior or degrades them, that is not the way God intends us to understand this passage. Now, if you're having some doubts about verses 11 and 12 and and where this has all gone with the structure of authority, Paul goes on to explain it in verses 13 and 14. So let's read verses 13 and 14. They read this. For Adam was, was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. See, Paul goes all the way back to creation for this. And he points out, he's going to give us, in two verses, he gives us two reasons for God's order of authority in the church. And note that these reasons are not dependent on location. They're not dependent on culture. They're not rooted in contemporary issues. It goes all the way back to creation. So, let's look at these two reasons. The first reason that Paul gives in verse 13 is the order of creation. He starts by pointing out that Adam, the man, was created first and was given original authority. God created man and then later created woman, Eve, out of man, which is in Genesis 2.22. And by the way, if you're wondering where the title of Adam's rib came from, I think, John, I think that's where this came from. So he's giving me the thumbs up on that. So um, that's where that whole concept came from, if you were wondering the tie into that. So, but we know that the first command that God gave was given to man before Eve was created. And I think it has an impact on verse 14. So let me just read Genesis 2, 16 and 17. This was the first command that God gave to man before Eve had been created. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. See, God gave instruction to Adam And then Eve received her instruction from Adam. The order of creation points to the order that God has established in the church. And the second reason Paul gave in verse 14 was this. It's in the sin of Adam and Eve. The differences in Adam and Eve's sins are connected to their difference in authority. Let me explain that. Chronologically, we know that Eve sinned first. But you can also note that the Bible never attributes sin to Eve, but to Adam. Think of Romans 5.12. 
Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man. See, Adam had responsibility and authority that Eve did not. Eve was deceived by the serpent, as it tells us in verse 14. But Adam, when he sinned, he sinned knowing what he was doing. He had the authority, but he did not fulfill his responsibility. And therefore, sin is attributed to the one man. John MacArthur summed up these verses this way. I thought it was pretty good. Headship by the man was then part of God's design from the beginning. And he, man, bears the responsibility for its success or failure. The tragic encounter with the serpent confirmed the wisdom of that design. Now this passage ends in verse 15 with a really interesting verse. It reads this. Verse 15 reads, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. It's kind of an interesting verse, but let me be clear. This verse is not teaching that any woman that has a child is eternally saved from the wages of sin. That's not what this verse is saying. And I think it's also obvious that this verse is not saying that every woman will bear a child. So, I think what Paul is saying in this verse, and it goes back to this verse 14, is that even though Eve was deceived, as it mentioned, the stigma of that event would not be what defines women. Think about Genesis 3.15. When the punishment for the sin came down, what did God promise the woman, though? God promised the Messiah would ultimately come from the seed of the woman. And note the positive traits in verse 15 that he attributes and he expects for women to practice faith, love, holiness, and self-control. Now, we all know the impact of a mother that a mother has on her children is well-documented in Scripture and externally. And mothers and women we've seen, in general, have a great impact, a deep impact, on teaching their children about God. But as we close this look at this uh, role, in women's, role in the church, I think it's kind of fitting that we have this passage ending with verse 15 talking about childbearing because we're going to have a baby dedication here in just a minute. And what a glorious picture this is of parents who desire to dedicate themselves and to seek the church's help in raising those children to know about our God, a God who so loved us that he sent his only son into the world that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So let me close this by saying what I said at the beginning. The goal of this passage, as well as our goal, is for all of God's family to live peaceful and godly lives, dignified in every way for our good and for God's glory. Let's close in prayer. God, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for... Uh, the fact that uh, you have a perfect plan that is for our good and for your glory. And God, we just know that uh, it is to our best to, to have peace in the church and to live quiet and godly lives. Lord, help us to be filled with godliness, that our lives would be adorned with godliness and good works. Uh, Lord, help us to do all that we can to promote uh, that peace here within the church. And Lord, that we would all glory in you and in the order of authority that you have set for the church. So we thank you for this time. We just commit the rest of our day now to you. We thank you for the opportunity to see a baby dedication. And we thank you for uh, all the graduates who have worked so hard, Lord, as they head out to college or where or beyond. We just pray that you would protect them. Help them, Lord, to, to know your word, to be able to refute 
where the, where the world may say something is foolishness or controversial. Lord, may they see the glory of your wisdom and the beauty of your word. So we just thank you, we praise you, and we commit the rest of our day to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.